I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, Election Day, November 6th, 2012. Coming up, we talk with author Dayton Duncan about the upcoming documentary, The Dust Bowl, which he wrote and co-produced with Ken Burns. And you'll hear from John Seeger, CEO of Population Connection, about the environmental challenges of an expanding global human population. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Imagine a self-powered pacemaker. No batteries needed. Engineers at the University of Michigan are working to make that vision come true, a device that could someday allow pacemakers and other implanted medical devices to power themselves. Pacemakers are small computerized devices that are implanted in the chest and attached to the heart. They're used to treat conditions where a patient's heart needs help keeping a steady beat. Currently, pacemakers run on batteries that need to be replaced every six or seven years, which means serious surgery. The prototype device uses piezoelectricity, which is energy generated from motion, in this case the motion of a beating heart. Every time the heart muscle contracts, it creates physical energy that the device can harvest and convert into electricity to keep the pacemaker running. The researchers presented data on their prototype on Sunday at the annual meeting of the American Heart Association. In laboratory tests using simulated heartbeats and animal testing, the device was able to produce many times the energy that a pacemaker needs, and it worked at heart rates much slower and much faster than any actual human heart can beat. In theory, this could lead to the creation of permanent pacemakers with no batteries to replace, and therefore fewer surgeries for patients. But first, the researchers caution they have to prove that the device is not only safe, but also reliable enough to last a lifetime, and that could take years of testing. If men are from Mars and women are from Venus, what planets are Republicans and Democrats from? What makes us choose certain candidates over others anyway? New research from the University of South Carolina offers fresh evidence that choosing a candidate may depend more on your biological makeup than a careful analysis of issues. The researchers suggest that Republicans and Democrats are hardwired differently and may be naturally inclined to hold varying, if not opposing, perceptions and values. The study was led by Roger Newman Norlin, an assistant professor of exercise science at USC and director of the university's Brain Stimulation Lab. The researchers analyzed MRI scans of 24 students, scans of the mirror neuron system, a network of brain areas linked to a host of social and emotional abilities. After declaring their political affiliation, the student subjects were given questionnaires that gauge their attitudes on a range of political issues. Among Democrats, the results found more neural activity in areas believed to be linked with broad social connectedness, say, friends or the world at large. Among Republicans, more activity was found in areas linked with tight social connectedness, namely family and country. The study appears to confirm the stereotypes that Democrats tend to be more global and Republicans more America-centric. But, according to the researchers, it actually runs counter to the other recent research that suggests that Democrats hold a virtual monopoly on compassion. So, in case you're wondering, what about independents, libertarians, and others? Sorry. As, the as in the presidential debates, they're not included in this study. The study is currently under review at the journal Political Psychology. Last week, CU Nobel Prize winner Tom Cech and colleagues announced a breakthrough in their quest to stop cancer. 
It involves an enzyme known as telomerase, which helps cells divide almost endlessly, which is helpful when a child is growing. In adults, most cells shun the use of telomerase. Instead, they save up a limited number of cell divisions, timed to last until old age. Cancer cells are different. They are great gobblers of telomerase. That's where CU's discovery comes in. It's a way to possibly prevent cancer cells from tanking up on telomerase. Check says that while human trials are years off, the discovery looks promising. However, what about any healthy cells that still need telomerase? Would the CU approach kill them? Here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender talking with CU Nobel Prize winner Tom Check. In adults, telomerase isn't even made in most cells. So there isn't any telomerase, so most of our cells would have absolutely no effect. Now, in a few cells, such as in the gut epithelium and some other stem cell compartments, there is a low level of telomerase, and the telomeres are longer than they are in most cancer cells. So the expectation is that those cells would be much less sensitive to a telomerase inhibitor than the cancer cells. I hear you saying that our healthy cells might be able to hold their breath a little bit longer than the cancer cells when it comes to depriving them of telomerase for a while. And then after the cancer cells were gone, would you let them have their telomerase back? Then we could let them have their telomerase back, absolutely. Right now, most of our chemotherapy for cancer involves ways to kill all the cells in the body but kill the cancer cells faster, but do a lot of harm actually to the healthy cells too. Are you intrigued that if most cells don't even need telomerase, this might be more gentle for the body potentially than our current way of doing chemotherapy? Oh, absolutely. That's the reason for having enthusiasm about this particular target is that it is much more specific to cancer cells. As we said, not 100% specific, but much more focused on the cancer cells and much less just sort of hitting the whole body with a hammer and hoping that the cancer cells will be more susceptible to the hammer than normal cells. That's CU Nobel Prize winner Tom Check talking about research his team has just published in the journal Science. For an extended version of this interview, check our website, howonearthradio.org. I just blowed in and I got them dust bowl blues. I just blowed in and I got them dust bowl blues. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. The current drought in Colorado and many other states has shriveled millions of acres of wheat, corn, and other crops and forced some ranchers to sell off cattle. But bad as this one is, it pales in comparison to the nearly 10-year stretch in the 1930s of devastating drought. Its unrelenting gargantuan dust storms inspired the name the Dust Bowl. Children died of dust pneumonia, thousands of cattle starved or were slaughtered, some farmers committed suicide, and hundreds of thousands of people were forced to flee their homes. It came to be called the worst man-made ecological disaster in history, American history. On November 18th and 19th, PBS will broadcast a heartbreaking four-hour documentary called The Dust Bowl. It was directed by Ken Burns and written and co-produced by Dayton Duncan. Duncan has collaborated with Burns on epic projects before, including the National Parks, America's Best Idea. 
Dayton Duncan also wrote a beautiful companion book on the Dust Bowl. And he joins us on the phone from a polling station in Walpole, New Hampshire, to discuss the film and lessons learned or not learned from the Dust Bowl. Dayton, welcome to How on Earth. Uh, it's great to be here. So um, you're doing your duty today? I am. <laughs> uh, every four years, we both Ken and I live in a small town in New Hampshire, and uh, uh, besides doing my civic duty of voting, I generally stand outside and hold a sign for the candidate that I support. Good for you. So bring us to the Dust Bowl. I mean, this is almost a 10-year stretch, starting really in 1931, right? And since we're here in Colorado, if you can take us specifically to some of the areas hardest hit here. Well, it was uh, it was one of it was a terrible drought. It was uh, severe and it was long lasting, particularly in the area uh, for Colorado in southeastern Colorado, Colorado, Baca County, Prowers County, that that general area, uh, and the counties near it in uh, southwestern Kansas and the uh, Oklahoma Panhandle, the Texas Panhandle, northeastern uh, New Mexico, and that area because it was so hard, so so the the drought was so bad, and because it was so long-lasting, it became known as the Dust Bowl. Now, there was drought at the start in 46 of the 48 states in 31, 32, 33, um, but, it, but it, it eased in the other places, and it, and it stayed there. Um, simultaneously to the severe drought was the constant winds of the plains, uh, but the human factor involved in this was that in the teens and the 20s, in this frenzy for wheat, uh, the equivalent of the state of Ohio was plowed up for the first time. The, the buffalo grass that had evolved over thousands of years to hold the moisture and to you know stay in place was turned for wheat planting, and all that soil started rising in these huge monstrous storms called black blizzards. And, is, uh, is that what it, they called the great plow up, this whole frenzy for wheat production? Yeah, it was uh, in the teens, late teens during the World War One, when uh, farmers were encouraged to the, under the slogan, wheat will win the war because the Russian mm. wheat had been closed off uh, to, to European markets. So they were encouraged to do it. They, the new thing called tractors made it easier. Uh, the Crop prices were guaranteed. Land was cheap out there on the southern plains, and uh, and there was just a frenzy, a bubble that lasted about 15 years. So really beyond uh, the havoc Mother Nature wreaked, it was a lot of practices that were not amenable to the land there, right? That's right. I mean, what we think, our story is both about uh, Mother Nature, but it's also about human nature. Um, you know, on the plains, as you folks know uh, better than, than, than we do here in New Hampshire, uh, you know, you're going to get a drought uh, with certain regularities. How long and how severe it will be is, you know, more up to chance. You're always going to have high winds. The question is, what do you do with the land? And do you leave it vulnerable to drought and winds? And in uh, the 30s, uh, well, set up in the Great Plow Up, they exposed millions upon millions of acres of uh, soil to to those winds. Yeah, and then what finally tipped the balance in their favor? I mean, there eventually came rain, but also um, some intervention. 
Well, I think one of the heroes of our uh, of our film and the, the companion book is a guy named Howard Fennell, who was a soil scientist out in the panhandle of Oklahoma, and then he got reassigned to the panhandle of Texas during what was called Operation Dust Bowl to try to figure out better farming practices, uh, ways to knock down the sand dunes that had developed over uh, the 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 Dust Bowl years where there was the real possibility that a mini Sahara Desert was forming in the heart of the nation. So we had to knock down the dunes, but also have new plowing practices, planting practices, contour plowing, using a, a deeper plow that got you more clods versus just pulverizing the soil and leaving it there to blow, leaving uh, stubble on the fields after you harvest it, and, and equally important, deciding that certain places you, were just not appropriate for to try to uh, grow cash crops, that it should be reseeded permanently um, as a grassland, and that's how we have our national grasslands are the result of that. The dusted out farmers sold their land back to the federal government. It was homesteading in reverse, mm. and the government reseeded that land and and named them grasslands. And they, you know, they can be leased out for grazing, but they can't be plowed up for cash crops. So government intervention is not always such a bad thing, is you know. In the, the in the 30s, in the Dust Bowl, if you if you uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a hero. Uh, people there were relying on government programs without which the uh, about a quarter of the people in the Dust Bowl ended up having to move out uh, and give up. But three-quarters of them stayed. But the only reason they were able to stay were government programs that helped them with commodities, government programs that helped them pay for their gasoline so they could, uh, if they were doing the proper reseeding and the proper planning practices, government programs that gave their kids jobs, you know, and the people that we interviewed for our film to a person uh, to a person understood that without uh, active uh, government on their side uh, they 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 would have been lost and one other thing I'm curious um, if you bring us to the current time I know someone in the film said absolutely the Dust Bowl could happen again could happen now and it's not that it's you know Mother Nature's strict rain that they're relying on but really sucking so much water out of the Ogallala aquifer yeah. and someone said it's 50 percent of what it had been and they're expecting it even in texas where they have a so-called water plan expecting it to be gone in 20 years i mean what kind of sustainable practice is that well that's uh, gets back to human nature doesn't it um they you know they saw this great aquifer underneath them that was the result of the melting of glaciers uh, 10,000 years ago uh, won't be replenished. And um, they said, well, if we're not going to get the rain from the skies, let's drop straws into this thing. And uh, with new technology, we're able to do that. The problem that uh, the reason that there can be another dust bowl is you know that droughts can return. You know the winds are always going to be there. And the question for the southern plains is going to be, particularly when that aquifer runs dry, and it will, it's just a question of when and under what circumstances, what kind of practices will they be using then? And if they try to keep doing what they're still doing right now with the use of the aquifer, then, uh, then it can all happen again. And believe me, if you watch our film, or if you read the book, it is something that you don't want to put anybody through. Yeah, boy, it uh, is again. a heartbreaking and wrenching and very human film. And it's uh, it, you can tune into some of the octogenarians from Colorado as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. That was Dayton Duncan, writer and co-producer, along with Ken Burns of the documentary The Dust Bowl. It'll air on November 18th and 19th on PBS from 6 to 8 p.m. local time. But check your 
local listings. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Ted Burnham. Our next guest is John Seeger, CEO of the nonprofit Population Connection. Population Connection is engaged in educational and advocacy efforts to help American citizens and politicians understand the many issues related to the ever-expanding global human population. John will be speaking this Friday at the CU campus in Boulder. His presentation is titled Soaring Past 7 Billion, Population Challenges for a Crowded World. John Seeger, thank you for joining us this morning. Glad to be here. So let's start with some numbers because they really are impressive. I I read on your organization's website that when Population Connection was founded in 1968, the world population was 3.5 billion, and today it's doubled to more than 7 billion. So what are we on track for in the future? Well, we don't know where we're going to end up because uh, the outcome is going to depend on the 7 billion of us, what each of us uh, does or doesn't do individually. Uh, Right now, it looks like we're on a track to add at least another 3 billion people to the planet by the end of the century, perhaps sooner than that. Uh, And almost all of these people are going to be living in the poorest places on Earth. So that makes the challenge doubly difficult. So this is such a big issue, and there's so many things that we could talk about. But for the sake of time today, I want to try and focus on just the connections between the population and the environment. Your organization identifies population pressure as a factor in all kinds of environmental damage, from deforestation to wildlife poaching to climate change. Can you give us some examples of how how population contributes to environmental harms? Yeah, we, you know, we are the... We have about 100 times, we humans have about 100 times the biomass of any other species that's ever lived. Uh, No species ever had the impact on the planet that we're having. Uh, For example, today there are tens of thousands of other species that are threatened and endangered, uh, a rate of potential extinction that we haven't seen since the dinosaurs roamed the earth. In almost every case, we are the culprits, one way or another. Uh, either through overhunting, overfishing, uh, failure to protect uh, ecological areas, introduction of of, uh, invasive species, and now climate change. Uh, In fact, increasingly, scientists are are seeing our impact as being so great that they're talking about us entering literally a new geological epoch. Uh, We've been in the Holocene epoch uh, since the last ice age, And now uh, scientists are saying that the human impact on this planet, literally on the planet itself, let alone the species that survive on it, is so great uh, that we are are literally changing the Earth in a way that no species has ever done before. So my next question was going to be if there's a particular area of the world or particular ecosystem that's that's especially vulnerable, but it, it sounds from that like everything's vulnerable. Yeah, you know, I think we need to think about, I think we have a great challenge today because we have to think, you know, it used to be true, you know, think globally, act locally, uh, and and you should. Uh, But uh, we also have to act globally. Uh, There is no such thing as Boulder climate change or Beijing climate change. Uh, We all live in one ecosystem, and we have to therefore think about things on a 
scale, but we've never thought, the, uh, thought about them before in terms of size. But we also have to start thinking in terms of time scales that we humans are not very good at dealing with. We can't think just in terms of days or weeks or months or years. We have to start thinking in terms not just of generations, but of centuries and millennia. Uh, it's taken us a long time to get into this situation. It's going to take a very long time, even under the best of circumstances, to begin to undo the damage we're doing every single day. So this Friday, you're going to be speaking to uh, a class. It's uh, Max Boykoff's uh, class of environmental Intro to Environmental Studies. Um, and there, I should tell our listeners, there is room uh, in the lecture hall. It's at Munzinger Auditorium. It's a very big uh, auditorium. So there's room for, for the public to drop in if they'd like to hear, uh, hear your presentation. Uh, 1 p.m. on Friday at Munzinger. Um, what, what do you tell students that, uh, that, that helps set the stage for this, this long view that you're advocating? Well, I, I, uh, I try to start with the personal. You know, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by these huge numbers, you know, the millions, the billions, the trillions. You know, we add another Colorado uh, to the Earth's population every three weeks, and, and the numbers can be overwhelming. But I think it's important to bring it back to a very personal level and realize that, that, there's, that each of us can make an incredible difference. The first thing we suggest that people do is to give careful thought uh, and good planning to one of the most important decisions any of us makes, which is the decision of when, whether, and how many children to have. Here in the United States, half of all pregnancies are unplanned. Uh, you know, we all have to plan our days just to get through them, and yet here's one of the most important decisions any, anyone can ever make, and, and yet we, we don't always give it the thought and care this important decision deserves. So I, I try to urge students not to be overwhelmed by it, but to realize that there are specific things they can do, starting with their own personal choices, that can make a world of difference. Okay. Well, we've only just scratched the surface of uh, population issues today. There's so much to talk about. And John, you're going to be back uh, this Friday during the, the morning news magazine on KGNU to talk about some of the other implications of population growth. Uh, so listeners, be sure to tune in. Shelley Schlender will have that interview. And we've been speaking with John Seeger from the nonprofit Population Connection about some of the environmental consequences of an ever-expanding human population. John, thank you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran. It was engineered by Maeve Conran. Jim Pullen is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Woody Guthrie. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past podcasts and extended interviews. You can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran.